very excited to be able to be sharing with you today. Uh, it never, never, um, never passes me the privilege of being able to stand in front of you and speak and share God's word and uh, share some things that are, you know that have been happening in my life, things that I've been learning, and you know hopefully you get something out of that as well. Um, we've been speaking a lot about uh, following Jesus in Matthew sixteen twenty four where he said, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And so we've heard lots of different aspects of that. And the one thing that I have been thinking a lot about is what does it actually mean? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? And what does it mean to be a Christian? Because I think most of us here would probably say that we're Christians but what does it actually mean? I don't know if anyone's ever thought about that. No? Maybe just me. But the thing that I guess stands out to me is I think there are two things that really stand out in relation to being a Christian. The first thing is what we believe, and the second thing is how we act. And, you know, ultimately, what we believe inside of us determines how we act on the on the outside. As an example, I believe that spiders are vicious and deadly. Amen. Amen. So I don't go anywhere near spiders. And I'm sorry if this offends you, but if I do, it's with a shoe in my hand probably. <laughs> no one likes spiders. Jake's weird. Um, but I think ultimately what we believe determines how we act. And so really the, the true question for us to be asking ourselves is, what do we believe? What do you believe as a Christian? What is it that you actually believe? And you know, our society today is so full of opinions. It's very difficult to find truth, even within Christianity. And we're basically told that we should believe in whatever feels right to us, right? If it feels right, then it's, it's your truth. You know, you hear terms like find your truth and live your best life and you do you. I think that'll work better tonight. There'll be probably more young people here tonight. <laughs> but that's, that's the culture we live in. You do you, which basically means if that's right for you, you go for it. As, I'm not going to, you know, that, that may not be right for me, but I'm not going to judge you for it. You, you do you, bro, and life is all good. And that, that is what our culture and our society is constantly telling us. And you know that the sad thing is, or the difficult thing is, anyone who has an opposing opinion gets labelled as something. I don't want to say what those labels are, but if, if we don't agree with each other, it's not enough to say, let's just agree to disagree. If I disagree with you, I'm a bigot, or you know, I'm judgmental, or something along those lines. And so our culture is turning into this very lovely you know, very well-rounded, everybody-love-everybody kind of culture, which, in fact, I believe, is at the heart of Christianity. But there's so many questions that have come up which are not that different to the early church. But some questions, and I'm just going to throw them out there, I'm not answering them. These are just questions that I know we think about as a church. Is gay marriage okay? Does God see homosexuality as a sin? 
What about transgender people? What about Muslims or people of other faith? Love is love, right? That's the message. Love is love. So why should we care what other people do? And, you know, even within Christianity, within our churches, within our own denominations, there's things that we just cannot seem to agree on. And it's very confusing. You know, if you're a, if, especially if you're a new Christian or if, you know, if, you've, if you've been asking questions around, you know, is this right or is that right or who am I supposed to believe here, it's very hard to find the truth. Because there's so many differing opinions. If you've used Google, wow. You, I, I know that if I want the answer to something, I can look at Google and find the answer I want. And if I don't, I just change the question so that it's a bit more specific so that I get the answer that I want. No matter what the question is, I know I can find my truth in Google. <laughs> it's true, right? It's funny because we've all done it. We've all looked at Google, well, most, I'm sure, have looked at Google and asked questions looking for an answer. And when you read something that doesn't sit right with you, what do you do? You X out of it, you hit the back button, you go back to Google, and you find something that's going to affirm what you believe on the inside. You know, even within church, baptism. Ben just talked about doing baptisms on Sunday. I think that's amazing. I wish I had thought of getting baptised on Easter Sunday. Maybe I'll do it again. Who knows? But that, you know, even within Christianity, baptism is not the same. We believe, as the Port Church and as many other denominations, we believe that baptism should be by full immersion as an adult or as a person making a free decision to give their life to Christ. That's what we believe. Other denominations believe in sprinkling water on a baby's head and committing them. Others believe in other you know, kinds of variations of that. And I'm not saying either one of those is right or wrong. Communion is another one. You know, we, uh, we um, uh, I'm sure as most of you have been to lots of different churches, you know, our communion is a little cup with juice in it and a broken up cracker. You know, some denominations see that as a heresy. Some denominations think that that is an that is disrespectful to God because some denominations believe that the wafer and the juice are actual incarnations of Jesus, of God, and that you are accepting that into your body. It's a literal translation, like this is, this is the blood of Christ and this is the body of Christ, whereas we, we break up crackers and give juice. Now, I don't know which one's right or wrong, and I'm not here to judge on that. What about worship? I know worship is a, some people are very passionate about it, as they should be. But worship in churches is completely different. You know, some, some churches will sing one or two hymns out of a hymn book and then they will, you know, they'll go through their service. Other churches do 30 or 45 minutes of rock concert style lights and cameras and, you know, big songs and, you know, all kinds of things. One song, five songs, how long is too long? Everyone has a different opinion, even within our church, should I say. And what about leadership? You know, some denominations, some parts of Christianity believe that women should not be in leadership. I'm going to say I don't believe that. Personally, I'm very happy to say our church does not believe that. 
But some denominations actually believe that women shouldn't be in leadership. Now, does that make them not Christian? No, it doesn't. Ultimately, it doesn't. (laughs) I wrote about chairs. What about chairs? (laughs) I could talk for half an hour about the chairs in this this church. It seems like, um, anyway, chairs. We can't always agree on chairs either, can we? (laughs) Seems like a bigger problem than it should, but it is. Anyway, you get the picture, right? Even within Christianity, we can't seem to agree on much. I'm reading this book at the moment by a guy called David Kinnaman called Unchristian. And it's, it's an American study, but this guy's a researcher who did this research of 18 to 35-year-olds in America about why that particular age group, 18 to 35-year-olds, are the least represented in church. Why is this the smallest group of generation in church uh, in churches, and not just in America, I would say around the world. If you look in this room now, I'm not in that age group anymore, but 18 to 35s, there are, there are very few of them, and I want to say us, there are very few of that generation who are still committed to coming to church every week. And you know, what they found in this research, I found really, really interesting. There is this perception out in the community about what Christianity and around what churches are. And the number one thing that people thought about Christians was that, number one, that we're anti-homosexual. 91% of the thousands of people that they surveyed thought that Christians, churches, were anti-homosexual. The second one was that we would we are judgmental. 87% of people said we were judgmental. And the third thing is hypocritical. And I'm sure you all know what it is, but just for my own benefit, hypocritical means saying one thing and doing the opposite, right? It's saying don't swear and then turning around and saying what a... Anyway, I won't finish that sentence. But, but being hypocritical, 85% of the people that they surveyed believed that people within churches are hypocritical, I don't know how that sits with you, but something about that doesn't seem right to me. Because funny enough, inside our circle, inside our church, and even though this was an American study, I I believe it's very true for us here in Australia as well, inside our, our circle, we talk about love and accepting people and, you know, being, uh, being like Jesus and being disciples of Jesus. But you know, the, the funny thing is, Something from our front door out to, into the community, something changes. The perception changes. And I'm not being judgmental in this because I'm putting myself in this. All of us, I think, need to think from this perspective. But the challenge is, how do you stay true to what the Bible says? How do you, how do you hold on to your convictions? How do you, with faith, believe in what is written in the Bible and then step out into the community where all of this other stuff is happening and still hold on to those virtues without making anyone think that you're being anti-homosexual, that you're being hypocritical or judgmental. How does that happen? I wish I had the answer, but I don't. You know, the early church was absolutely no different. 
You know, within the first hundred years after Jesus had died, which is when most of or all of the New Testament, I believe most, if not all, the New Testament was written within that first hundred years after Jesus had died. Do you know that a hundred years after that, there were all of these crazy ideas around what the scriptures meant, what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus, what they should and shouldn't believe. Now, I'm not going to go into all of them. You can read some of them, you know, in the, uh, in the epistles. There are letters to the churches that talk about, you know, and you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. And that was within, you know, the first 30 or 40 years. It dawned on me the other day because I was just trying to relate that to, to um, my own life Joyce, who unfortunately passed away a few weeks ago, was 93, 94, 94 years old. You know what that means? That, that, as far as a generation goes, that means that Joyce would have been around when Jesus was born, and we are hearing it firsthand from Joyce. Like she, those people, 100 years later, would have been speaking with people who would have been in it firsthand. It's like your parents telling you about the day you were born. That's the, they saw it with their own eyes, and then they're telling you about it. So within that 140 years, people had started to mould the truth and mould the message of Jesus into a way that fit into their culture, right? And I don't know if we've got the uh, slide-up holes. The... You know, because there was an issue... Because, because of this issue, some of the early church fathers got together and said, look, we, we need to get this sorted because if we don't sort this out, our message, the message of Christ who died on the cross for us is going to get diluted and savaged and torn apart and, and ultimately we'll end up with nothing. And so what I'm really happy to share with you, and I'm sure maybe a lot of you have, have heard about this, what they came up with in 140 AD is something that's called the Apostles' Creed. Everyone heard of that? Right. So we have it here. And I'm going to get out of the way, but I want us to read this together. I don't know where to stand, so I'm not in the way. <laughs> oh, cordless mic, I can do this. You know, some churches use this as a prayer. We, we believe... I'll come back and say this before I go back up again, before we read it together... This is the basis for all, all Christian denominations, Catholic, Anglican, Baptists, all of them. Every Christian denomination is formed on this rock of belief. This is the absolute minimum statement of belief for all Christians. So I think we should read it together. Let's start, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, it's just a note down the bottom there that says Holy Catholic Church. Obviously, we have the 
um, the very large Roman Catholic Church. In this context, this was before, remember this is in 140 AD, there were no denominations at that point. So the Catholic Church in this says down the bottom, it's the true Christian church for all times and all places. So when, when this says the Catholic Church, it's all of us. If you call yourself a Christian, this is it. Now, what you won't see in there is what's right or wrong. What this doesn't talk about is how we should do communion or how we should baptise people or what culture says is right or wrong. It doesn't talk about that. And I think you can safely assume that if you believe this in your core, if this is your true belief, then you can safely assume that you believe in the same God that's in the Bible, right? Now, just a couple of really quick things about this. It is very deliberately broken into three sections, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? There's three very distinct um, uh, areas that it's broken into deliberately because we believe in a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So that's why this is um, broken up in that um, way. You know, some, some denominations have this as a prayer. This is what they pray all the time. And I, I would personally encourage you if, you, if you struggle to pray, obviously in the Bible, Jesus talks about, um, you know, the, um, the Father's Prayer. Um, but I, personally, I think it is important for all of us as Christians to come back to this. Now, I will say this has been rewritten a few other times. There was a Nicene Creed and, you know, there were a couple of other times that they got together to kind of polish this up a bit and expand it. But if you read this one and then you read the others, you can see how things had popped up even within those times where they had to clarify and re-clarify again. Actually, this is specifically what we mean. But this is where it all started. And the reason it's called the Apostles' Creed is because it comes from the writings of the apostles who were with Jesus firsthand. And I don't want to get into too much depth um, about this, but I know one of the things that sometimes we struggle with is where did the Bible come from? Is it true? You know, how do we know that it's been translated correctly? You know, there, there are some formulas around how they can verify texts um, from history. And there are, there are texts that are verified that are much, much older than the Bible that go back thousands of years, and they've been able to verify them. One of the ways that they can verify them is the number of replications of those writings at the time. Now, some of the early ones have, you know, 50, uh, 50 replications, 100 replications, 300 replications, and they are considered to be true writings. They're not just made up later on. The Bible, the New Testament, has over... Actually, I can't remember now. Over 3,000 or 5,000. I'm going to say 3,000 because that's a lower amount, but it could be 5,000. I think it is, actually. Anyway... The Bible, the, the New Testament as we know it today, has over 5,000 replications that can be verified as originals. 5,000 of them. It is, that's crazy. And yet we still live in a culture that says it's just a book written by people who have these whacked out ideas who probably you know, were too drunk or something. That's the culture we believe in. And the, the, the Bible, it's judgmental. It's, it's not true. It's not my truth, at least. So why should, I, why, should I, why should I believe in it? 
You know, our church actually, we have our own statement of faith as well. I remember when we redid our constitution, we looked at our statement of faith and we made sure that it was, you know, what we wanted to stand for. And I recommend that you read it because I I read it in relation to the the Apostles' Creed um, and you can see some similarities in there. Obviously, some things are the same, but other things, anything outside of this Apostles' Creed, anything out of this foundation is generally considered tradition for churches. It's, It's not necessarily a basis for faith. It becomes doctrine. It becomes... It becomes what you believe in, but it is, not actually, it is not actually part of our statement of faith, our original reason for becoming Christians. The rest of it is around tradition. So if you want to read our statement of faith, our constitution, I think it's on our website. You can probably see Julie or um, Juanita if you want a copy of it in paper. But I would recommend that you read it because if you are not 100% sure about what you believe in as a, as a Christian. If you're coming to church because it's, we're really nice people here, thank you. That's amazing. And we love that and we want people to come here because we're nice people. But ultimately, I don't want you to keep coming to church because you like me. I want you to keep coming to church so that you can know Jesus, so that you can understand your own beliefs, so that your beliefs change and your behaviour changes and your whole world changes based on what you believe on your inside. Because when you have a relationship with God, it changes you. There's so many scriptures about renewing of your mind and, you know, we're a new creation through Christ. You cannot help but be changed. And so going back to beliefs and actions, you know, when I, when I first started reading the Bible, there was, and I've actually preached on this a few times now, that there is one scripture that I always go back to that is, I would say, my personal statement of faith. This is my, this is Damien's creed. It's from the Bible, but this is what I personally believe in. This is what drives me day in, day out. And it's Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I just want to stop there because there's other bits to that. But if you have nothing else other than that little bit, if God is for you, who could be against you? The things that you would achieve in your life are limitless. You know, I'm going to read the rest of it and then I'll come back to that. I don't want to get too distracted. Uh, Verse 32. He, as in God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against these, those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No condemnation, right? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for all of us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life 
angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, just in case it wasn't covered in the list before that. Nothing in all of creation, in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. That is my creed. And I believe in faith that those words are truth. If you want to say, that, that is my truth, bro, when, I, when, when someone says, you do you, that's what I go to. If God is for me, and I believe that he is, because I believe in the Apostles' Creed, and I believe in the words that are written here, I believe that God is for me, so who could be against me? And you know, that thought, and I will give a warning here, If you believe that and you put action to that belief, you are, you are, I promise you, you are going to have to face some things in your life. Because ultimately, God wants freedom for us. Jesus died for our freedom. And so when you believe that God is for you, you know that God wants the best for you. So when trials and troubles come, what do you do? You face them knowing that God is for you. I can tell you countless situations, but just to give you a few, most of you have probably heard this story before, but my dad and mum broke up when I was four years old. My dad left, went to Melbourne, got remarried, had other kids, had absolutely nothing to do with me growing up whatsoever from the age of four. Throughout all my life, it was this shameful kind of secret that I kept hidden from everyone. I never told friends about it. I never talked about my dad. If anyone asked about him, I would lie. You know, I made up stories about who my dad was because the truth, the truth of it was so shameful to me, even though I had nothing to do with it and no control over that situation. It wasn't my fault. But I carried that shame and I carried that guilt And I carried all of the negativity that comes along with the decisions that someone else made in my life. And when I became a Christian, I remember reading the Bible and I remember reading, you know, how amazing that would be. And I was reading this book one day that I can't even remember what it was, to be honest. But I remember just sitting in my lounge room. It was a beautiful day. sun was shining through the window. It's like a romantic movie. But I remember reading this book that was kind of challenging the thought around putting faith to action, right? Faith without deeds is dead, but putting faith to actions. And I remember, I don't know, I don't know why, actually, I do know why, because God wanted me to deal with this, but at that point, I had never thought about my dad very much. At that, I was, This was 12 years ago, I was 26. I'd never thought about reconciling with my dad. I'd never thought about reaching out to him. I always maintained that if he wanted to have a relationship with me, I would be open to it, but he would have to make that first step. And so I remember um, sitting on the couch and I felt like God was speaking to me and he asked me this question, will you contact your dad? And I said, no, (laughs) no, I would not. And I felt God challenge me in this, in saying, do you believe in me? And I said, yes. Of course, I was, kind of, I was you know, kind of a new Christian at the time. Of course I believe. If you want me to throw myself off the roof, I will do that. You say the word. And he said, reach out to your dad. 
And I said, being a little bit smart, to be honest, I was like, okay, bro, I don't even know where he lives. I don't have a phone number. I don't have anything. I was like, if, if, you, if you want to give me that info, sure, why not? And I was quite confident that that would never happen. The next day, I was at work. I have to give you this whole context because I want you to understand how God works. I was working at the bank at the time. I worked with this girl called Regan who went to school with my sister. Right? My sister's four years older than me. I was not friends with Regan. We just knew each other through work. She recognised my last name. She said, hey, are you, you know, are you Susan's brother? I said, yes. You know, and so we kind of had a bit of a connection through that. Not friends at all. Anyway, Regan left. She went to work at the ATO. At the ATO, she met a girl called Sandra and noticed that Sandra's last name was Garcia. And she said, hey, Sandra, do you know a guy called Damien Garcia? And she said, I do, actually. That's my cousin. Our dads are brothers. I haven't seen him in 20 years. I get an email from Reagan the next day saying, hey, I've just met this girl, Sandra, who says she's your cousin. Do you mind if I give you her email address? I was like, what a coincidence. <laughs> I said, sure, you know, give her my email address because it's not my dad. I knew that she didn't see her dad either, maybe a bit of a family trait, but uh, I thought it was a bit of a safe bet. Anyway, I always got along really well with her. She emails me, hey, how you going, you know, how's life, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. I said, great, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but I was just thinking about you and my dad the other day and, you know, I was thinking about maybe uh, getting in contact with him. And she said, that's amazing. I was just at his house last week. She stayed at my dad's house with her husband <laughs> and their child, stayed with my dad in Melbourne. <laughs> my, my heart sank. She said to me, as if God was speaking to her directly, she said, why don't I give you his details so you can get in contact with him? I said, sure, okay. So she gave me his address, his phone number, and his email address. Yep. And so I thought long and hard about how I would get in contact with him, and I certainly wasn't going to turn up on his doorstep. And ringing him was just far too confronting for me. And so I sent him an email. And I was like, hey, Dad. <laughs> oh, honestly, I can't even remember what I said. I was like, hey, Stamien, your son just happened to be, uh, you know, talking to Sandra the other day. She gave me details. I thought I'd just say to you, you know, if you ever want to catch up, I'm open to it. You know, here's my phone number. If you want to call me, here it is. Send. Done. And I was very, I felt very accomplished that I had, I had, I had gone through with what I felt God's will for me was, that challenge. Done waiting with anticipated breath for that phone to ring so that I didn't have to make the first step and ring him. Well, isn't God funny? Of all the times for him to call me, he called me on a Sunday night at 6 o'clock. Now, 6 o'clock Sundays is church. And I, being a good boy, 
most of the time put my phone on silent. So as I'm sitting in church, listening to the word of God, my father is ringing me on my phone, and I had no idea. Yeah, it's funny. Thank you for laughing, Donna. It makes me feel better. So the meeting finishes. I look at my phone as you do, and I've got a missed call and a voicemail from a Melbourne number. And I knew. You know, you know those times where you know what's going on? I knew what this was all about, and I was so angry about it. I listened to the voicemail, and he, <laughs> he said, Oh, hey, Damien, it's your dad. Uh, got your email. Give me a call. If it wasn't so funny now, I'd still be crying about it. But I can tell you, I got into my car and every insecurity, every, every bit of shame, every bit of guilt, every bit of negative thinking that I had ever had in my life came flooding back to me. And to be honest, I was so scared. I don't even know what about. It was completely irrational. He wanted me to call him. I wanted to, but I was so scared that I had to make the first move. And so I put his number in my phone. I honestly listened to the voicemail about probably 10 times, and I was so angry about it. Firstly, because he had walked out. Secondly, because I felt like I'd been obedient to God in reaching out, and thirdly, because I felt like he was still getting out of it easy and I had to do all the hard work in it. And so, anyway, I won't, I won't share the full story because that is a completely other message, but I ended up ringing him and he answered the phone before I could hang up and, uh, you know, there was this amazing moment of peace that I had with God just before he'd answered the phone and long story short, I think three or four weeks later, I'd flown over to Melbourne. I spent a week with him, you know, reconciling and talking and getting some answers that I wanted. Um, and it was, a, it was an amazing experience. It really was. And, you know, before I had put faith to action, I had all these visions, all these thoughts around what my life was going to be from that point on. I wouldn't have to carry around that, that shame of not having a father. My dad was back. You know, he was, we were going to be good mates. He was going to be there to support me. I could, you know, confide in him. All those thoughts I had in my mind. Because I felt like that's, that was the goal, you know, in, in being faithful. I thought that that's what God wanted me to do. And let me tell you, I've spoken to that man one other time since... That was, that was about 10 years ago, 11 years ago. I spoke to him, I've spoken to him one more time. And, you know, I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm actually really good with it. Because what it allowed me to do in that moment was grow in my relationship with God. And I felt like through that process, there was a replacement of who... You know, I'd always held my dad in high regard, even though I didn't know him, you know. But I, there was a replacement. I knew that God was my father. And that my belief inside of me, that if, if God is for me, who could be against me? Yeah. 
And I don't need, I don't need, I don't need to search for anything else, even though it's hard sometimes. But faith in what you believe will drive you to deal with stuff in your life. And you know, we've been talking Matthew 16, 24, and Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And just so you know, a disciple is not just someone who reads the Bible. The word discipleship actually means someone who learns and someone who puts that learning into action. Jesus said, whoever, and Ben talked about this really clearly, whoever means everybody, whoever wants, right? He didn't say whoever will. Jesus is very clear about what he says. Whoever wants or desires, it's our choice. He doesn't make us do anything. Whoever desires to be a disciple, whoever desires to learn about Jesus and God and put that into action, they must, not maybe, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And you know, just before this, for context, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he's telling them about the crucifixion and he's talking about how he's going to go to the cross and on the third day he raised again. And I love this scripture. Peter pulls him aside and says, hey, Jesus. He's, he, it says that Peter rebukes him, but the word rebuke, like we think about that as like a stern telling off. The word rebuke actually means like a warning of imminent danger. He's saying, hey, Jesus, not you, not on our watch. This is not going to happen to you. And Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan. And trust me, I've checked. The translation for that word Satan is Satan. There's no hidden message in that. He's literally calling him the devil. Get behind me, Satan, for you do not know the things of God. That's what he says. You are not concerned with the things of God. And what he's saying to him is, listen, Peter, I know that you're afraid. I know that you're scared. I know that you don't know what's going to happen. And I know that you don't understand God's will. But what is going on here, he says, you're a stumbling block to me. That stumbling block, talks. the translation is a trap, a snare. You know, we've got those, those traps and something steps on it and all of a sudden the rope flicks up and grabs them by the leg. That's what that's talking about, a stumbling block. The devil is trying to use Peter as a stumbling block to stop God, uh, Jesus and God from fulfilling God's will in his life. And Jesus very clearly says, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me and you do not concern yourself with the things of God. And what he's saying is, this is God's will. If you let fear, if you let anxiety, if you let doubt, if you let unbelief, if you let other people around you tell you that this is not good, even though it's my will, it says in the next line, if you, let me read it to you. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. If you, if you don't want to, and he's saying very literally save their life in relation to his crucifixion because that was God's will, but there are lots of crucifixions for us. Lots of us have things in our life that we don't want to die to. If we don't 
If we don't die to that, we will lose our life. But if we do deny ourselves, if we do die to ourselves, if we lose our life and everything that we hold true, security, you know, all those things that we put around us, if we lose those things, we will find our life in eternity with God. But if you choose to save your life, you lose it. Now, I don't... I'm not here to talk about what that actually means around losing your life. All I can say is that when Jesus says, follow me, he's actually asking us to be obedient to the will of God, whatever that may be in your life. For me, it has been getting in contact with my dad, you know, uh, quitting my job when it seemed like a ridiculous thing to do, Uh, so many other things, applying for grants at church. We've applied for so many grants and got them. It's ridiculous. We've, it's almost embarrassing. I say that honestly. When I, you know, when we get the email through, I, you know, I send them through to Ben. I'm like, oh, guys, another grant. You know, like, it's ridiculous. Nearly $70,000 in money from the government to preach and teach and love on the community and show them that they are loved and accepted. Not to be hypocritical, not to be judgmental but to love the community. None of these things make sense. And to be honest, I had all these other points, but I think I've gone too far. So I just want to say this. This is difficult to say because I am preaching to myself even in saying this. If you are a Christian and you believe in the Apostles' Creed and you believe that the Bible is the Word of God then there is an expectation from God that we will be disciples of Jesus. And that means obedience. And I know that's a tough word to swallow sometimes. But I want to make it very clear. I know full well, even for myself, when someone says obedience, our mind directly goes to the sin in our life and we start thinking, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do that, I shouldn't eat that Tim Tam, I shouldn't drink, I shouldn't gamble, I shouldn't gossip, I shouldn't swear. All of those things are probably good not to do. But obedience in this context has nothing to do with what you don't do. As Christians, we've become more famous for what we don't believe in rather than what we do believe in. And I'm here to tell you that obedience as a disciple of Christ very simply says in John 13, 14. 13:34. A new this is Jesus speaking, a new command I give you: love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone, not just Christians, but everyone, will know that you are my disciples if you love each other. That's how the world will know that we are disciples of Christ, by what we believe and by what we do. And I had all these other points, but I'm just going to give you one. The, the one thing that I want to leave you with today is if I can give you any uh, encouragement, any uh, prodding, whatever the case may be, spend time getting to know God. If you know God 
in your heart and in your beliefs. If you, and, and when I say get to know God, unfortunately, I mean sitting down and reading the Bible because the Bible contains the heart of God. In here is exactly what God wants for us in our life. And don't think about this from a condemnation perspective. This is about how we treat each other. This is about how we relate in our, in our community. If we're seen as judgmental and hypocritical, we've missed the point. We're not that. We're at our core, that is not us. We are not judgmental. We might be hypocritical, but we're humans. But the important thing is that the community know that. We don't, we don't portray this vision of grandeur that come to church and everything is going to be amazing. It's not. When I met my dad, it was the worst thing I'd ever been through in my life at the time. I hated it. I didn't want to do it. But I did. And I can stand here today, the privilege of standing before you and being able to share my story with you as an encouragement to you for you to be able to do the same thing. Because if I can get through it, you can get through it. And you know why? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? You are more than a conqueror, no matter what life throws against you. Anyway, I've gone way too long. I thought I was going to be quick. (laughs) I didn't even get through all my notes. Anyway, I'm going to pray. Father, we just thank you for your word, your physical word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who speaks to us internally. I just pray, Lord, that there is an outpouring of courage. That we are driven to action because that is what leads us to a deeper relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that if anyone has any doubts, any insecurities that you just speak to them loud and clear about what's important to you. And I know as a church, we are driven to serve this community, Lord, and I just pray that the workers are plenty because the harvest is ripe. And I just pray, Lord, and ask you to bless every single person here. Give them strength and comfort in the name of Jesus. Amen.